Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 3, Deuteronomy chapter 3, and we will be exploring, examining, and explaining Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, and also verses 21 and 22. And if you are so able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1 to 11, and then 21 to 22. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us. He and all his people to battle at Adri. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages, and we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Mount Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salica and Adre, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, breadth according to the common cubit. Verse 21. And I commanded Joshua at that time, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So these historical records of God's command to the nation of Israel to go up and take possession of both the lands of King Sihon of Heshbon in Deuteronomy 2 and King Og of Bashan in Deuteronomy 3, they present to us two questions. Two questions that we must grapple with, appreciate, and answer correctly. Two questions that help us understand our place and help us understand the place of the enemies of the Lord. The two questions are these. We covered one last week. We'll look at another today. The two questions are these. First, who do you think you are, O man, to answer back to God? And the second is, who do you think they are that you would be afraid of them? So the first question we discussed last week, right, as we explored the Lord's work in King Sihon's heart. We saw the Lord work in his kingdom. We saw the Lord work in his armies. We saw that it was the Lord who said to Israel through the prophet Moses in chapter 2, verse 31, look at it. Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. And the text goes on to quite clearly 
declare that it was the sovereign, perfect, wonderful work of our glorious God to work in Sihan's heart in order to ensure that Sihan mobilized his armies to get them out onto the battlefield so that those very armies would be utterly defeated and utterly destroyed by the Israelites. Moses, to encourage the Israelites as they are standing here where the book of Deuteronomy is written, it's written to that generation of Israelites about to go into Canaan. All of this is the record of Moses reminding them of God's previous faithfulness as a foundation for them to go up into the land now. And he's reminding them of how God worked in and among them and even in the hearts and minds of their enemies to ensure that they gained the victory because God was fighting for them. And so Moses reminds them of God's complete, absolute, and unhindered rule over all things. Everything, even the working of King Sihon's heart. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, look at it again. Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by for, that word for also means because, because or for the Lord your God hardened his spirit, made his heart obstinate that or so that he might give him, meaning Sihon, into your hand as it is to this day. Now, our particular cultural climate and our societal tastes we and values might bristle at texts like these, texts that unashamedly declare that the living God, the God of Israel, is king, is God, is Lord, is sovereign over all. As King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21, verse 1, he is the God who turns the king's heart wherever he wills. And the Apostle Paul also, in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, made it clear that this God, the living God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The Lord hardened Sihon's heart, or spirit, and the Lord made Sihon's heart obstinate so that Sihon, his lands, his armies would be given into the hands of Israel and be struck down and destroyed so that Israel could go up, dispossess them, and take occupancy of the land. And the Israelite armies did exactly as the Lord commanded, and they routed Sihon's armies, and they captured all of his cities, and they devoted to destruction, or they placed under the curse of God's just judgment the Amorites, those sinners, those wicked rebels against the Lord whose iniquity had reached its full measure. Those men, women, who, and children deserving of the wrath of God in every one of those cities. All were put to death. While that might shock us, might embarrass us, these are the works of a glorious God, a just and righteous God. All were put to death as Israel acted by the Lord's command as the rod of his righteous judgment upon rebels and sinners. And as we looked at these events last week, we asked the question that would be anticipated by the Apostle Paul as we consider these events. In Romans 9, verse 19, Paul anticipates a question about what he is teaching about the hardening and the mercy of God. And he said, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, Paul anticipates the question that is still asked by many who are grappling with this subject today, if it is true that God is the one who hardens hearts, as he is said to have done in Pharaoh, in King Sihon, and in all of the kings and peoples in the land of Canaan, if it is true that God hardened their hearts in order to have them either continue in disobedience to the Lord for a prolonged season like he did with Pharaoh so that ten strikes might come upon Egypt, or to bring them, in Sihon's case, out into battle to be destroyed, how can it be? How can God be fair? How can people still be held responsible for their deeds, seeing that they couldn't resist the active work of God's hardening of their spirits and making their hearts obstinate? What kind of God would do that? What gives here? Why would God do that? How is that fair? That's the question that Paul anticipates that many of you here would be asking about this particular subject. 
Wouldn't it be better for God to allow them to make their own decisions so that it's when they come in, uh, when God judges them, he can judge them rightly? And all of those questions have been asked for the last 2,000 years. And the answer that the Apostle Paul gives to us is for many, it rubs them the wrong way. Because in the end, the Apostle Paul will look at you and I and say, how can you be so arrogant? How can you be that self-important? How can you trust in your own wisdom that much that you would accuse God of injustice? That's what he says in Romans 9, 20 to 21. This is the answer to that question. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter, meaning God, have no right over the clay, meaning creation, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The implied answer to that question is, yes, he does. In other words, who do you think you are? How smart and how wise do you presume yourself to be? How pompous and egotistic are you that you would assume or imagine that you know better than the Lord, the perfectly wise, good, just, and righteous God, how to govern and oversee creation, his own creation, and everything in it? Would you really answer back to God in this matter? Would you really take it upon yourself to tell him that if you were in his place or if you were in charge, I'd do it better than you. I'd do it differently than you. I would do it more equitably and more fairly than you. Would any of us here ever say that we could do anything better than the Lord? I hope not. Yikes. Think about the degree of self-obsession and self-boasting that one must possess to think that way. Consider that such thoughts are actually the very definition of idolatry. The putting of another, in this case yourself, in the place of God and assuming a superior knowledge and ability to govern the ways and the motions of mankind and creation in general. Who do you think you are, O oh man? You being the clay, me being the clay. That we would accuse the potter of doing the wrong thing with what belongs to him. No, you and I are called to read God's word and to acknowledge the Lord's perfections in all things and to ascribe to him all glory, all honor, all praise because he is the only good and righteous sovereign. If you or I were put in his place, we would mess everything up right from the very minute we began. We magnify him for everything he ordains, everything he does in and to and with his creation. At the risk of being repetitive, I've used this example before, but it does, in my mind, get the, the point across. I probably used it like five weeks ago, so if you were here five weeks ago, sorry. I want you to imagine for a second that you have started a business. You have done all the work getting that business off the ground. You have invested your life savings in that business. You have taken all the risks. You have quit your job and you have sacrificed day in and day out to see this business get off the ground and succeed. You invented the product that is being sold or the service that is being rendered and you burn the candle at both ends. Early in the morning, you are up working, and late into the night, you are investing your blood and your sweat and your tears in that business, and eventually, one day, it takes off. After all you've put in, the product or the service you have now created is out there benefiting the people thanks to your tireless labor and your careful, painstaking oversight. Now the business is a success, and so the time has come to hire some employees as your eye is now set on expanding the reach of your business. So you interview some staff, you hire them, and you tell them the vision and the goals and the expectation that they must follow as your employees. But very quickly, very quickly, 
they begin to question the way that you're running the business. They think that they know better what ought to be done in and with your business. And these new workers begin to rebel against your leadership. They rebel against you, the boss. And they start trying to sideline you saying, that guy doesn't know what he's doing or that girl doesn't know what she's doing. They begin telling you, we know better how to run this business than you. We know better how to lead this thing than you, the one who sacrificed, put your blood, sweat, and tears, spent day in, day out working on this. We know better. And they begin trying to push you out in order to take over. In other words, they kind of build a tower of Babel with which to storm your office. What would your response be to those ingrates? You. Would you think to yourself, oh, fiddle-dee-dee, look at that. It's wonderful. I love it when people barge into the thing I created and push me to the side because you know what? They do know better. Or would you say to yourself, would you say to them, who do you think you are, oh, employee? Who do you think you are to come in here and try to tell me, the creator, the owner, and the proprietor of this business, that you know better than me how to run it? You may not understand why I decide what I decide or do what I do, but I've been here since the beginning. I know the ins and the outs, the things that you don't see. I know all the details that aren't even in your mind in the least. So either shape up or here's your pink slip, go. Would that be kind of how you dealt with it? I think we all get the point, and yet many of us would withhold the same right of ownership over creation to the Lord, who is eternal in power and divine in nature, who is wise and infinitely good, who created everything, who owns all things. We don't give him the same right of ownership that we would give a small business owner. And it's been like that since the very beginning, hasn't it? You remember way back in Genesis 1 or Genesis 3, the Lord gave to Adam and Eve every single tree in the garden, a multitude of trees, all bearing delicious fruit. And he withheld from them one tree in the midst of it. But having one tree held back from Adam and Eve proved to be too much. It was unacceptable to them that God would withhold anything from them. They wouldn't trust the Lord's word to them when all they had was one command. And every single one of us since then, at some point in our life, prior to becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, had, and if you're not a believer now, has or are are trying to sideline the Lord, believing that you make a better God than he does. If you want to see the chaos and the depravity and the conceit that trying to be our own God brings to a society and a nation and a world, just look. Look out at the world. It's a bunch of small g gods running around all vying for power and our world is not good for it. It leads to depravity, deviance, madness, and confusion. So that's what we talked about last week as a reminder for this week. This week, we come, that was with King Sihon of Heshbon. This week, we come to King Og of Bashan. And we'll be looking at another question this week. Not who do you think you are, but this week, who do you think they are? That you would fear, dread, panic, or be anxious about them, as in seriously, Listen to the word of the Lord. Who do you think that they are? When I say they, I mean the enemies of the Lord scattered throughout the world. Who do you think they are that you would allow them to inspire and elicit fear in you, child of the living God? Why would you, knowing that the Lord is with you, knowing that Scripture teaches on almost every page that he fights for you, that he goes ahead of you, why would you then 
tremble at or fret at or be agitated at those who either labor to halt, hinder, or stop the progress of the gospel of the kingdom of God in our world, which Jesus said cannot ever happen, or those who make every effort to destroy you as an individual, to threaten you as an individual, to threaten your livelihood, or whatever else they might do to inspire in you panic or alarm. Seriously, ask yourself, who are they? Here's the answer. They are nothing. Who do we think that they are that we would give them that degree of power over us that we would fear them and worry about them? We are, if you are a child of Jesus Christ this morning, we are the people of the living God. And the word of God speaks, the word that of the word that God speaks to us, the people of God, is this Deuteronomy 3:2. Do not fear him. Do not fear Og, as fearsome and as terrifying as he might seem. Hear this, Og, and no one else, aside from God Himself, is worthy of your fear. The enemies that line up against God's people in this world will ultimately prove to be nothing. And if you are one who reads and rereads and meditates on the Word of God regularly, on all that God has shown us, all that God has revealed to us about Himself in His Word, then you must see and you must know that the God you serve, the God who has called you, if you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life, He has called you by name and is committed to working powerfully on your behalf. And every step you take is a step that God has already gone before you and taken himself as he fights for you. You remember what Jesus said in, to the disciples in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Meaning Jesus is ahead of us, right? Fighting for us in front of us. And he says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand or my Father's hand. So when Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand, that means who can snatch them out of your, his hand? It means no one. The God who has adopted you into his very own family by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he laughs at the so-called power of those in this world. And sometimes he will, on this world stage, put down those so-called powers. And guess why? For your sake. And in one of the most stunningly beautiful passages in the scriptures, the Lord declares this very thing to Israel. And while it is a word indeed to Israel proper, the principle can be applied to all for whom God is Savior. Listen to these words that the Lord declared to Israel through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 5. O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you for or because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. Did you hear what the Lord said he does for his people in that text? The Lord gives nations over for the sake of his people. And even more wonderfully, the Lord has promised and stated that all who line themselves up against the Lord and his anointed, all who array themselves against the people of God, all who refuse the offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of them will, like Sihon of Heshbon, will, like Og, king of Bashan, be defeated and conquered, never to rise up again as a threat to the people of God. The ultimate reception of this promise will be in the eternal city of God. 
when all evil is and all evildoers are rooted out and thrown into the lake of fire to be judged and to be tormented for that wickedness day and night forever. So as we come to this record of King Og of Bashan, the final word of the Lord to Israel with regard to this mighty king as they look back and to the people of Canaan as they look forward is Deuteronomy 3.22. You shall not fear them. So this is Israel looking forward to the lands that they're about to enter. And he says, you shall not fear them. And why? Because look what I did for you with Sahan and Og. I am the God who has always fought for you. And now as I call you to advance and fight some more, know this, it's me who fights for you. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Now, this phrase, do not fear them, or you shall not fear, this is a constant imperative from the Lord to his people in Scripture. This command is given hundreds of times in the Bible. Hundreds of times. This is one of the main messages of God to you. Do not fear. Hear it from Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. And do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or hear King David in Psalm 27 verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Hear the Apostle Peter counsel his readers. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And hear the Apostle Paul, do not be anxious about anything or do not be fearful about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And three times, hear it from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 10, he said it three times as he sent his disciples out to proclaim the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he sent them as sheep in the midst of wolves, which is very much what we are in this world. Sheep sent out in the midst of wolves. He told them that as ministers and witnesses and evangelists who obey Christ's command to go and make disciples, they, and us too, will be dragged before governors and kings to be flogged and punished for our witness. But even though that is the case, listen to what Christ says to each and every one of us. Have no fear of them. Matthew 10, 26. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Meaning, fear God and fear God alone. And again, in Matthew 10, 31, fear not because in the Lord's eyes you are valuable. You are worth more than many sparrows, he says. So again, hundreds of times, hundreds of times, you and I, those who trust Jesus for salvation, are told in many and varied ways, do not fear. Because who do, they, who do you think they are that they deserve fear? That they deserve your fear? Your fear is a precious commodity, and it ought only be to be directed in one to one area, to one person. The Lord is with us. The Lord goes ahead of us. The Lord fights for us. And every one of you in here who believes in the name of Jesus will ultimately be victorious. It might not feel like that right now. It might feel like the world is closing in and continually cinching its grip on the people of God and the gospel as it keeps taking people and bringing it into ever-increasing enslavement. But as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not withstand the oncoming of the church. And all of you who believe in the name of Jesus will ultimately be blessed with a sublime a grand, a rapturous, a perfect eternity with the joy of your soul. The Lord himself 
So why fear? And so as we live here on this earth during this time, as those who rebel against, among all those who rebel against the Lord, among those who would seek to strike fear in the hearts of his children, always remember, do not fear. Because listen, again, the enemies of the Lord know that if they can inspire fear in you or bring fear to dominate you, then they have you right where they want you. Think about the things fear will inspire in your soul. Fear will inspire you to rebel against God and to lie and to cheat and to move into self-protectionism and do all sorts of rebellious and sinful things. Fear will lead us to irrational decisions. Fear will lead us to despising and hating one another because some sickness takes over the world. Fear will ruin our witness. Fear will cause us to suspect each other. Fear will cause us to move back from the world rather than go into it as dis- to make disciples. And if the world can get us to fear, it's got us where it wants us. So do not fear. May your heart be so filled with the reverential fear of the Lord that there is no room left in your heart to fear anyone or anything else. And so the story of Israel's conquest of Og buttressed and confirmed to Israel on the banks of, this, of the Jordan as they are ready to head over to Canaan this very reality. Do not fear! Go up and take possession of Canaan just like you went up and took possession of Og's land. Now why would this need to be said to Israel as they were going to battle against Og? Right? In chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 1, when they turned and went up the way of Bashan. Why would the Lord need to, in the next verse, say, don't fear him? Here's the answer. Because the kingdom of Og possessed the two things that brought fear and panic to the generation of Israelites 40 years earlier. The same two things were present in Og's kingdom that brought the prior generation of Israelites to rebel against God and all die in the wilderness. What were those two things that led them to rebel against the command of the Lord to conquer Canaan those 40 years earlier? We read it in Numbers 13, 28, when the faithless spies came back and reported these words to the Israelites. The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The report came back that there were giant men and giant walls in the land of Canaan. And the giant men and giant walls dissuaded a fearful people from obeying God's word. And in that fear, they grumbled against Moses, the Lord's spokesman, and even sought to return to their slavery in Egypt. Do you see the type of response that fear can elicit from those who let it dominate them? You see what fear can excite and draw out of people. I'm going back to Egypt rather than moving forward in faith. And now as we look at the kingdom of Og and Bashan, we see the giant man that Og was. Look at verse 11. Only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. Now, a couple of things to note here. It says, when it says that only Og was left of the remnant of the Rephaim, meaning the giant men or the fearsome men, it means on that side of the Jordan River, right? So they're not in Canaan. They're on the other side of the Jordan River about to enter into Canaan. And as we read the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua, we will see that as Caleb goes up to take over the lands that had been promised to him as an inheritance, the land uh, known as Hebron, that he would there meet with and drive out and destroy the Anakim or the giants from that place. But on this side of the Jordan, only Og had remained. Because the Lord, as he brought Moab and Ammon into the lands that he gave them to them as a possession, 
He empowered those two nations to destroy the Rephaim who once dominated those and populated those lands. Look back at Deuteronomy 2, verse 20 and 21. Ammon was counted as a land of the Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamim, a people great and many and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. You see that, right? On this side of the Jordan, on the outskirts of Canaan, the Lord had worked through the Moabites and the Ammonites to extinguish the number and power of the Rephaim in the land. And now, after all of that, only King Og remains. And even so, this man, King Og, was an intimidating man. A man of frightening and menacing stature. Verse 11 tells us that his bed was made of iron. Now there's some debate here as to whether the word used for bed actually refers to his literal bed, meaning the thing he goes and sleeps on every night when he's tired, or his coffin or sarcophagus, meaning his final sleeping place. Either way... The dimensions of Og's bed or his coffin are quite spectacular when you read them. And the fact that it's made of iron, which at that time in world history, as we were exiting the Bronze Age and entering into the Iron Age, at that time, iron was considered a precious metal, quite costly, befitting the status and stature of a king like Og of Bashan. This bed verse 11 tells us, was put on display of Rabbah in Rabbah of the Ammonites, meaning in the ancient capital of the Ammonites. That would be found or located, not the coffin, but the place or the bed, in modern-day Amman, Jordan. So just how impressive was Og physically? We aren't told his exact stature, right? But we can surmise from the size of his bed or his coffin that he was quite an imposing man. Look at the size of his bed. Nine cubits long, which equates to roughly 14 feet long. And it was four cubits wide, which equates to about six plus feet wide. How big of a man could fit on a bed or in a coffin that size? It would seem he was a very large man. It would actually seem that Og might have been or probably was a more impressive and more formidable figure than even Goliath, who we later read in 1 Samuel 17:4, he stood six cubits and a span, meaning around nine feet tall. In the previous generation of Israelites, they noted the presence of giant men in Canaan, And so they refused to go up in obedience to the Lord. But now, by this point, the Lord had cleared most of them out, leaving King Og alone. Who, according to chapter 3, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, came out against us. He, that's King Og, and his people to battle against us, or battle at Edri. Now, I want you to picture that scene, right? As Og approaches the armies of Israel in the wilderness walking at the head of his armies to meet them in battle. This man could have very well reached 10 feet tall, and he is leading an army behind him who think to themselves, with Og as our captain, how can we lose? In my uh, ball hockey days, such generals make everyone around them fight more vigorously. And so there have been times when the teams that we play have NHLers on, the, on their team. And while the team around this NHLer might be an average team, once that NHLer gets on the floor, he raises up the vigor and the um, excitement of everybody around him, and they all play better. We used to call it the Sidney Crosby effect, right? Because everybody plays better when you have one of these guys around. King Og is, we would call it the King Og effect. And this army comes behind this giant man towards the Israelites. And you might think, well, okay, there's one giant. Would that really paralyze an entire nation like to cause them to fear? Do you recall in later times who came out all by himself, 
to insult the armies of the living God under King Saul? You remember when Goliath came out all by himself? And he, by his own physical stature, by his very presence, struck fear into every single last one of Israel's troops? All except one, the young boy David. The only man in the nation who seemed to have trusted in the Lord so greatly that he had no fear of the giant who was insulting the nation. But on this occasion, the armies of Israel knew the Lord was with them. Unlike the previous generation, this generation said, We don't care if Og, the ten-footer, is coming towards us. We know the Lord is with us and that he's going to fight for us. He's fighting with us. Og is going to be like Sihon, and the Lord is going to give him into our hand. He will be devoted to destruction just like Sihon and his people were. So Og, no matter how large or how terrifying he might have been to other peoples, no matter how fearsome and formidable he was, he was no match for the living God of Israel. And Israel understands, I think, that without the Lord on their side... Og would have ripped through them quite quickly. Without the Lord fighting for Israel, Og would have most likely dispatched quickly and without prejudice the armies of Israel in the wilderness. But because the Lord was with these Israelites, and the Lord told the Israelites, you shall not fear them because it is the Lord who fights for you, they moved ahead, thinking to themselves, who do they think they are? And as the people today who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, as we advance, we don't advance with earthly weapons. We don't advance to wage war in any sort of physical way. But we do advance into the world to proclaim the gospel. And guess what? We have Christ as our captain. That's way better than having Og. We have the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth leading our charge. Like Israel of old, we can advance without fear because we have a captain who is greater than Joshua and greater than Moses. And we can move forward not to conquer lands, but to see the souls of lost sinners liberated from their darkness, liberated from their enslavement to sin as they hear the gospel and they turn to Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life, all of which we can do because every step we take, Jesus has already walked it and already cleared it out for us. They are nothing. As Caleb had tried to tell the previous generation of Israelites before meeting Og, you remember right in Numbers 14.9, he tried to say to them, don't fear the people of the land. They are bred for us. Don't fear them. Meaning, with the Lord on our side as we move forward, we will eat these armies alive. Are they any match for the Lord? No, they are not. Not only... However, was King Og a giant present in the land, which was one of the things that caused Israel to fear in the previous generation. But, as you read in verse 4, the cities over which Og reigned were cities that were well fortified. Remember, that was another reason. They have high walls. We couldn't possibly break down those walls, and so we must turn and go back to Egypt. Giant men, giant walls. We read here in chapter 3, verse 4, that not only was there one city with walls, but look, there were 60. You see that? 60 cities under Og's control. This kingdom was larger than Sihon's kingdom in Heshbon. And in 3.5, we read that all of these were cities with fortified, fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. 60 well-defended cities fortified with high walls, meaning thick, strong barriers to repel any possible invaders. These 60 cities also had gates. You see that word, gates, meaning large, heavy, almost impenetrable doors that blocked any passage in and out of the city. 
And not only did they have big walls and these big gates, but they also had bars, meaning those big pieces of wood that you would put across the door to ensure that they are secure and nobody can get, open them up or move them out of the way. Now imagine you're Israel's armies in the wilderness and you must now siege and take 60 cities, 60 walled and well-fortified cities after defeating King Og on the battlefield. Imagine if you do not realize, recognize, or trust that the Lord is on your side. What are you going to do in that moment? It's a, from the human perspective, this is a massive undertaking. And without the Lord going ahead of the nation to fight the battle, if they were even to get past the first test, which is the battle with Og, it would take months, if not years, to accomplish the feat of sieging 60 well-fortified cities if they were able to accomplish it at all. The only explanation for this quick and rapid series of victories and conquests is that the Lord gave Og and his kingdoms into Israel's hand. That the Lord fought for them. And so this time... The generation of Israelites called to go up and fight. They also saw a giant man and giant well-fortified walls. But this time, they believed the word of the Lord. They trusted that God was with them. They trusted that God was fighting for them. And so they didn't fear Og, nor did they fear the walls. And verse 3 of chapter 3, they went in and they struck him down until he had no survivor left. Now, look at the two events. Fear led to the death and the rebellion and ultimate death of an entire generation. Faith in the fact that God was fighting for them led to complete total victory. These are the two options before you. Fear, rebellion, death, faith, and victory. Which one do you want? And unlike the war against Sihon, where Moses actually sent envoys with words of shalom asking Sihon, would you permit us passage? Let us go on the king's highway. We won't buy any, or we won't, we'll pay for everything we, we eat. Would you let us go around your lands untouched and unhindered? Notice that Og didn't wait. He didn't wait for any messengers. He simply mustered up, gathered up his forces, and he went out to meet Israel on the battlefield. Og was supremely confident in the capacity of his army to demolish and eliminate the very Israelites that he had just heard defeated and destroyed his neighbor Sihon's entire kingdom. And as Og led his people against, out against Israel, if one were to simply look, if you were like on a mountain looking down, watching these two armies come together you might very well look at what's happening and think to yourself, that King Og, he holds all the cards. They, the, the armies of Bashan seem to have the advantage as they're being led by a, a giant man with well-trained troops and, and they're coming out of their heavily fortified cities. What is this group of wilderness guys going to do? What, possible, what could they possibly do to these armies? Kings and nations have always thought that it would be easy to eradicate and exterminate the people of God, haven't they? Go back to the Roman Empire. Ten successive generations and waves of persecution designed to completely stamp out the Christian faith. And the, the early church saint, Tertullian, would say, you know what? The blood of those martyrs was actually the seed of the church. And here we are, 2,000 years later, nations have risen, nations have fallen. And we are here. We are sitting here praising the Lord Jesus Christ because his kingdom will advance and it will not be hindered. The previous generation of Israelites cowered in fear. But as Jesus told us, when it comes to the spiritual battle when it comes to the spiritual war that we wage in this world to go and make disciples of all nations, the gates of hell will not prevail against our advance. 
In the same way that the fearsome King Og could not withstand the onslaught of that generation of Israelites for whom the Lord fought. And so we, sitting here today, we could be like the generation of Israel who fixated on the walls and the barriers and the giants and the armies and think to ourselves, well, we can't do anything. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to stew in my anger. And I'm going to complain and I'm going to watch the news. I'm going to get even more agitated and more upset about everything. And I'm going to sit with my friends and I'm just going to talk about how bad everything is and focus on all the bad stuff. That's a, that's a, a tactic that many of us will use. You sit like the wilderness generation, paralyzed with fear, and you grow increasingly angry and increasingly furious at a world that you fear maybe, perhaps, might win in the end. But the question that we're asking here is, who do you think they are? I love how David put it. As the men of Israel's armies were all cowering before Goliath. This is going to be my... (laughs) Sorry. This is going to be my new phrase. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That is what I want you to go out (laughs) with. (laughs) Quote the Bible everywhere you go, right? Seriously, you hear it, David. Seriously, who does this guy? I don't care if he's nine feet tall. I don't care who this man is. Who does he think he is to assume that he can defeat the people of the Lord? And people of the Lord, who are you to assume that he could beat you if the Lord's on your side? In the words of R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? I will go, said David, and I will defeat him in the name of the Lord. This is the God who, David said, delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. See, David is one, as small as he was, who understood that we must take the Lord at his word. And the same Lord that went before David, he is the same Lord that goes before us. And he wins. And so we obey and we press forward no matter how stacked against us the deck might seem. Guess what? Goliath dies. Sihon dies. King Og dies. The Canaanites die. Every single power and every single principality, every single king, every single nation, every single one that sets themselves up against the Lord and his anointed and refuses to repent, they will all be thrown down should they refuse and die in that rebellion. They all lose. But you... Hear the, pri- the promise of God's word in, from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will reign with him. So at this battle between Og and Israel, Israel obeyed the Lord and they fearlessly engaged Og in battle. Again, the odds didn't look good for them, but the Lord won the victory. And like they had with Sihon, look at verse 6, they devoted them to destruction. Every man, every city, every man, women, and children were devoted to the judgment or handed over to the judgment of God. And while some might look at these today and find a way to accuse the Lord of injustice or wrongdoing, it is not. Everything you read here are displays of either or both the merciful grace of God and steadfast love that he showers upon his chosen people. And at the same time, Glimpses of his perfect justice, judgment, and wrath. Wrath that awaits not only sinful Sihon, wicked Og, and reprobate Canaanites, but everyone who refuses to repent of their sin, believe the gospel. Everyone who refuses to confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead so that they might be saved. And the defeat of these two Amorite kings, it's actually consistently referenced in the Old Testament to remind Israel of the Lord's perfection when, or protection when things seemed to be overwhelming. It's also used as an inspiration to continue moving forward. Deuteronomy 29.7, as the covenant is being renewed, Moses reminds the Israelites, when you come to this place, 
Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle. But we defeated them. It's reminding them of what the Lord had done for them in times past as, in, as a way of inspiring their confidence to keep moving. And later, Nehemiah, when the Israelites return after their exile to the land, he's praying to the Lord in the hearing of the peoples that are standing there. And as he prays, glorifying the God of Israel and encouraging his people, he prayed this, You, Lord, gave to Israel kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Again, inspiring the confidence of the people in their God who fights for them. And the people, when renewing covenants, either in the wilderness or at their return to Jerusalem after a period of exile, they continually looked back at the faithfulness of the Lord in the past as an encouragement and as a confident foundation upon which to love and obey Him in the present. The events of Sihon and Og are one of the great displays of God's faithfulness and power and His sovereignty. But not only are these events looked back upon for encouragement and inspiration in the present, but I want you to hear how the psalmists look back on this. The destruction of Sihon and Og's kingdom, the handing over of their peoples to destruction is referred to like this in Psalm 135, verses 1 to 13. Let's read this. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. What does the destruction of Og and Sahan elicit in the psalmist? Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord who did these things for the sake of his chosen people. Praise the Lord who put to death all of the firstborn in Egypt, who killed the great kings Sihon and Og. The name of the Lord endures forever. He is great and he is greatly to be praised. Do you see how differently the psalmist speaks of these events than we might speak of these events? You see, the events of, that are recorded for us in Scripture are given to inspire to elicit, to inflame our worship of our great, glorious, and living God who does all of these things, who works out everything in his perfect creation, including the conquests of Amorite kings like Sihon of Heshbon and Og of Bashan. So this morning we've been confronted with two questions. First, who do you think you are? Again, are you one who thinks yourself smarter or more capable of governing creation than God himself, who at his good will and disposal turns the hearts of kings in whatever direction he wishes? Are you brighter and more discerning than God, who, as the psalmist said, does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth and in the seas and in the deeps? Are you fairer and more just than the God who hardens spirits and makes hearts obstinate in order to give wicked rebels over to judgment while dispensing his grace and his mercy on those he has called by name to himself? If that's you, the Lord in Scripture asks you, who do you think you are to question the decrees and the ordination and the will of the God who rules and reigns over the heavens and the earth? Who do you think you are to question the God who spoke them all into existence? 
Because one day, should you continue to exalt your own will over the Lord's, he will call you to account in the same way that he called his servant Job to account. To Job, who thought that he knew better what it meant to be righteous or for God to act righteously, God said this to him in chapter 38, verse 2, when he revealed himself to Job. And he asked this question, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? One of the most fearsome questions in the entirety of the Bible. Who is this that when he speaks obscures the truth and makes everyone who listens a little dumber every time? Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you answer me. Okay, Job, you who assumed you were so much smarter, get ready for my interrogation. Let me see how smart you really are, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched the line on it? And that goes on for another few chapters. The interrogation ultimately leaves Job speechless, He thought he knew better than the Lord what the Lord ought to do. He thought he knew better than the Lord maybe how to best prove that the Lord is righteous. But in the end, all Job could do when questioned by God was say this. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that hides counsel by words without knowledge? It was me. I uttered what I did not understand. Things that are too wonderful for me which I did not know. You said, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Listen, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you, and after all of this, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, I thought I knew so much, but now I realize that I know nothing. I realize that all you do is perfect, and I should have kept my mouth shut and humbled my soul and magnified your perfection. It's a good lesson for every one of us, isn't it? There will come a day when we stand before the Lord and the Lord unfolds His sovereign creation plan. And as we see it on that day in full measure, we'll look at it and we'll be like, of course! That's beautiful! I was such a moron. I am sorry. You were right all along, God. You are so amazing. The second question we were confronted with in closing is who do you think they are? Or for what possible reason, when you know the scriptural truth that God is with his children, that God goes ahead of his children and fights for them, that God conquers people for you, that God gives up nations for you, that God holds them in contempt and derision and laughs at their feeble efforts to thwart his plans and to ruin the souls of his people, why would we fear? None of the so-called powers on this earth actually present or possess any real power to do anything to us but that which the Lord has deemed it appropriate for them to do. And as the scriptures tell us, anything that they do is ultimately for our good. So even though the enemies of the cross might be imposing and intimidating like Og standing before his armies approaching the nation of Israel, every single one of them, by the hand and the power of the Lord, when all is said and done, will fall before him. And they will do begrudgingly the very thing that we do joyfully. That is, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, with our knees bowed and our hearts bursting with joy in Him. So may God be praised. May God be exalted. May God be glorified for His powerful deeds and His wonderful deeds by the mouths of those who love Him. And may your hearts, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, may your hearts be so full of reverential fear for Yahweh, the God, the living God, that there is no room to fear anyone, anything else. Because they're not worthy of that fear. Only your great God is. 
Father, we thank you for this time that we have been able to open your word this morning. I pray that you would help us to have a higher view of you, of yourself, of your glory. I pray that we would be comforted by the fact that you fight for us, that you blaze the trail for us, that you go ahead of us like a pioneer. You go ahead of us like a trailblazer. You go ahead of us like one with a spiritual machete and chop down the path that we walk so that we can walk it fearlessly. I pray that as we leave this place this morning and go back out into the world that seems so imposing, that seems like King Og coming against us with his armies, that you would help us to avoid fearing them. I pray that your spirit would lead us to a place where our hearts are just full of fear and reverence for you. And by that happening in our hearts, we would be content, comforted, at peace with everything that happens. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.